fourth watch starts now. Listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Kapow Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed night. Tonight we're going to be jumping right into a deep area filled with much adventure. So grab your fedora and whip as we take a real-life Indiana Jones journey into the supernatural realm. Submitted for the approval of the Kapow Radio Network, I call this episode the Nephilim Chronicles. Enter the Americas. Now, the Bible associates Noah's flood with the return of Jesus. This is why we spend so much time referencing these verses. Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You probably know how this passage is normally interpreted. It was just normal life for people. They were eating, drinking, marrying. Nothing really crazy going on there. But what if this verse is not referring to the mundane activities of daily life? What if it's referring to a darker time in history when the biblical giants roamed the earth? This was hardly the land of milk and honey back then. The destruction of the human genome was on the agenda. Men, women, animals, even plants were targeted in this satanic scheme. These giant Nephilim were reported to be violent, cannibalistic blood drinkers, possibly giving these verses new meaning. Genesis chapter 6 tells us what happened after the heavenly rebellion. In the ancient past, Lucifer was cast out of heaven, wanting to usurp the throne of God. It appears that other angels followed him. The book of Jude refers to them as angels who kept not their first estate. The ancient apocryphal book of Enoch tells us that 200 of these fallen angels found the women of earth desirable and took them as wives. This is confirmed by Genesis chapter 6. They had children together, monstrous hybrids that scripture calls mighty men, men of renown. According to the ancient historical accounts, including the writings of Josephus, these giants had voracious appetites and even superhuman strength. Some believe they may have been even 30 feet tall. The book of Numbers in chapter 13 records that normal humans were like grasshoppers at the feet of these giants. Now Goliath, of course, was close to 10 feet tall, and Og of Bashan slept in a 13-foot bed. So this isn't without precedent. It's also rumored that Goliath, at his 10 feet, was actually a 4th to a 5th generation giant, meaning that he wasn't a 1st generation Nephilim, but it was in his blood. Many of us that live in the United States are fascinated with the stories about the Nephilim, but don't really have too much knowledge of these creatures in the Americas. I found it fascinating in recent days as I've began researching the history of our country even before the Native Americans migrated here. And what I've learned has been more than interesting. It seems like in America we only get partial truths about certain topics. That is, until we dig deeper and pull together our resources. 
Tonight, I want us to pull together some of these resources. Long before our modern-day media, George Washington and even Abraham Lincoln were on record speaking about these giant hybrid creatures. So let's dive into some American history involving these giant hybrid demonic creatures we call Nephilim, and we'll look at the evidence of their existence in the Americas. One startling and largely unknown North American structure is in New Hampshire, referred to as the American Stonehenge. This version of Stonehenge was built for the purpose of telling astronomical events such as the summer and winter solstice. Wondering what would happen, a member of the family that owns the hinge decided to draw a line from the center out to the standing stone marking the summer solstice and extended it to see where it would lead. The destination ended at the exact center of the standing stones in the original Stonehenge, England. This is pretty interesting. Now, extending the line further, we wind up in Beirut, Lebanon, the home of the seafaring people known as the Phoenicians. Now, there's something remarkable about this. What's interesting about this is that the Phoenicians were the descendants of the Canaanites who were a Nephilim tribe listed in the Bible. So we have a direct link between an American monument that few people know about and the Nephilim mentioned in the Bible, the giants. Now somewhere between 3,000 to 3,500 years ago in present day Newark, Ohio, there was built a megalithic structured city that's referred to as the Great Circle Mount and Octagon Mount Complex. The Smithsonian Institute, as well as others, have done a great deal of work to cover up the truth behind this area and the stories that it bears. This cover-up is vital in the preserving of the Darwinian paradigm. There are many remains that were discovered in this complex by men of letters a hundred years ago and even before that that predate the Smithsonian altogether and other academia excavations. The men of letters found skeletal remains ranging from 7 to 12 feet tall and they documented these findings in multiple historical archives. We can actually find articles from newspapers from the 1800s and early 1900s about burial grounds in the United States with giant skeletons, but today these bones are nowhere to be found. In many cases, the Smithsonian Institution would come out, create the remains, leave the scene, and no one would see or hear of the evidence again. Now, originally when they came out to get the remains, the idea was they were going to take the remains and put them on display. Unfortunately, that's not exactly how it went down, which upset many of the men of letters and archaeologists that were involved in the digs. Many modern archaeologists from the Smithsonian claim that these bones never existed and that the men of letters actually found normal skeletons and didn't know how to measure properly a hundred years ago. Now, folks, men of letters were highly regarded doctors, scholars, archaeologists, just to name a few. We're not dealing with some Johnny-come-lately. We're not dealing with men that just fell off the turnip truck. We're dealing with real-life Indiana Jones types of men. And they don't know how to measure? That doesn't make sense to me. Measuring goes back thousands of years. So here we have men that are professionally trained, and they don't know how to measure? Yeah, I don't buy that. Now, there are more than 200 historically published articles that speak of these giant skeletal remains across America. We're going to go over some of these headlines. The Urbana Union, published in February 16, 1870, on page 1, Skeletons of a giant race found near Potosi. The evidence appears to be pretty well settled that this whole western country was once inhabited by a race of beings of gigantic stature, which were not only hard-working, industrious fellows, but well up in many of the fine arts. Another article, published in the Scientific American, August 14, 1880, on page 106, Ancient American Giants. 
The Reverend Stephen Bowers notes in the Kansas City Review of Science the opening of an interesting mound in Brush Creek Township, Ohio. The mound was opened by the Historical Society of the Township under the immediate supervision of Dr. J.F. Everhart of Zanesville. It measured 64 by 30 feet at the summit, gradually sloping in every direction and was 8 feet in height. There was found in it a sort of clay coffin including the skeleton of a woman measuring 8 feet in length. Within this coffin was found also the skeleton of a child about 3.5 feet in length and an image that crumbled when exposed to the atmosphere. In another grave was found the skeleton of a man and a woman, the former measuring 9 and the latter 8 feet in length. In a third grave occurred two other skeletons, male and female, measuring respectively 9 feet, 4 inches, and 8 feet. Seven other skeletons were found in the mound, the smallest of which measured 8 feet, while others reached the enormous length of 10 feet. Another publication, the Helena Independent, published on Wednesday, October 10th, 1883, in Helena, Montana, J.H. Hamley, a well-known and reliable citizen of Bernard, Missouri, writes to the Gazette, the particulars of the discovery of a giant skeleton four miles southwest of that place. A farmer named John W. Hannon found the bones protruding from the bank of a ravine that has been cut by the action of the rains during the past years. Mr. Hannon worked several days in unearthing the skeleton, which proved to be that of a human being whose height was 12 feet. So we're seeing these skeletons popping up and published in the newspapers of the day back in the 1800s. Another publication, The Anaconda Standard, published on April 29, 1890, on page 3. The Pony Express says that one day last week, carpenters on the Isdell Irrigating Ditch unearthed a skeleton of mammoth proportions. By actual measurements, it was 13 feet and 2 inches in length. The circumference of the skull when measured was found to be 37 inches. The feet were 21 inches in length. This is the second discovery of this kind made near Pony during the past year. Ed Sparrow, while sinking a shaft on his mine near Richmond Flats last June, exhumed a skeleton of even larger proportions than the one in question. From the thigh down, it measured 5 feet and 3 inches and was 17 feet in height. It is supposed that these skeletons are descendants of the historical tribe of giants known as Polos. The curiosity is now on exhibition at Dr. Cooper's office. The Hopkinsville Kentuckian published on April 23, 1897 on page 8, the bones of a giant 10 feet in height were found near Lewisport. The Times-Dispatch published on February 11, 1907 on page 8 about a giant's tooth. This discovery recalls that six months ago the skeleton of a giant was discovered in a cave near Bristol by workmen who were opening a stone quarry. The bones showed their former possessor to have been fully 10 feet in height. E.C. Huffaker, formerly of the Smithsonian Institution, expressed the opinion that this skeleton was that of a prehistoric giant. This is, this is kind of interesting. We've got a guy formerly of the Smithsonian. He's saying that this is obviously a skeleton of a giant from prehistoric time. Now we have modern day Smithsonian workers who are trying to cover all of this stuff up who are not on the same page. So we're seeing a change. We're seeing a paradigm shift even amongst people who've worked at the Smithsonian over the last hundred years. The New York Tribune posted on February 3, 1909, about a skeleton 15 feet high that was unearthed in Mexico. News was received here Monday from Mexico that at Ixtapalapa, a town 10 miles southeast of Mexico City, there had been discovered what was believed to be the skeleton of a prehistoric giant of extraordinary size. 
A person while excavating for the foundation of a house on the estate of Augustine Juarez found the skeleton of a human being that is estimated to have been about 15 feet high and who must have lived ages ago, judging from the ossified state of the bones. The discovery of the skeleton has revived the old Aztec legend that in a prehistoric age, a race of giants lived in the valley of Anahuac, a name given by the aboriginal Mexicans to that part of the Mexican plateau nearly corresponding to the modern valley of Mexico City. The Washington Herald on May 31, 1919 on page 5 published, Prehistoric Giant Unearthed. Seymour, Texas, May 30th, oil drillers claim to have found bones of a prehistoric giant 10 feet high. The Vancouver Sun posted on August 18, 1922 on page 9, Primitive Man 10 Feet Tall is Unearthed. Mexico City, August 17th, the Department of Agriculture yesterday received from an agent of Tyburn Island, Gulf of California, the skeleton of a primitive man more than 10 feet tall. It was found a few days ago. Other bones of similar size have been encountered. So we've seen multiple accounts in the 1800s through the early 1900s about these giants, about these Nephilim, about these demonic hybrid creatures that are talked about and discussed in the Bible. So we have to wonder why the 20th century American system has gone to such great lengths to cover this information up and to keep it from the masses in academia societies? The answer is simple. The fact of the matter is, we live in a humanistic, scientific society that thrives on Darwinism and the evolutionary paradigm. These historic burial mounds and skeletal remains further sells the supernatural and otherwise called irrational thinking found in the Bible. Of course, the unbelieving world, and even many of the professing Christian world, like to hide in a rational state of mind, denying the supernatural realm that is so well documented in the Bible. This perverted rationalistic approach is even ranking high among seminaries in our country. It's boiled down into a view known as the Sethite view of Genesis 6. These so-called theologians are ridiculously arrogant in trying to remove the supernatural and demonic descriptions that the Bible is clear about. This really gets under my skin. I bet many of these pastors and doctors believe that angels are little white cotton babies with white wings. <laughs> Last time I checked, angels were extraterrestrial cosmic warriors broken into two main factions, the angels of Yahweh and the fallen angels of Lucifer. Of course, we mentioned the fallen ones earlier that Jude mentioned as the angels that kept not their first estate. Idiocracy seems to be popular among modern day rationalists who are going to crap their diapers as we see the Nephilim return. The necessity of disproving an ancient race of giants, often the remains having six fingers, six toes, a double row of teeth, red hair, and wearing copper ornaments, would lie in the need to protect the Darwinian theory of evolution. Proof that the Nephilim had settled in the United States before the first native people would deal a serious blow to Darwinism. However, it's one thing to get rid of bones, it's quite another to hide large-scale earthworks and megalithic structures that were built with massive stones. These discoveries coincide with the supernatural truths of the Bible that teach that the race of fallen angels had sex with women and produced a giant demonic hybrid race known as the Nephilim. The Darwinists can't handle the fact that their entire structure of thinking is crushed just in this area of findings alone. About 3,500 years ago, the diaspora of the Levant, which is known as the Promised Land, when Joshua and Caleb entered the land, there were large populations of Nephilim there. God mandated that they wipe them all out, the men, the women, the children, and even animals. Many don't understand why a loving God would mandate such a wide annihilation. 
But as soon as we plug in the fact that these were the demonic race of the Nephilim, things start to make sense. There were over 20 Nephilim tribes in this area, all with different genetic characteristics. These creatures were never supposed to exist, folks, so wiping them out was a righteous act. Some people have a problem with the fact that there's not a shred of grace and mercy shown in this act. On the other hand, God showed grace and mercy to the land of Nineveh. Now let's shift over to Nineveh just for a second. Nineveh was among the most barbaric Gentiles of their day. In the ancient world, the city of Nineveh was fronted by a row of stakes around the city. On each of these stakes was a decapitated head of a victim. They would even slay their captives alive and even hang their skins up on the walls. As barbaric as they were, God sent Jonah to preach to them, calling them to repentance unto a holy and merciful, loving God. God extended grace and mercy unto this wicked and barbaric people, and they heeded the words of God through Jonah, and they repented and made right with God. But we never see any grace and mercy shown to any of the Nephilim or even descendants of the Nephilim. Go back to the flood. Go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Go back to the conquest of Canaan or any situation. God never showed any grace and mercy to the Nephilim or their descendants. So why is that? This is because they were an extraterrestrial hybrid race of demonic creatures which never should have existed. So as Joshua and Caleb crusaded into the promised land, there was a slaughter and a forced migration of these tribes of Nephilim creatures. Some of them even went north through Europe and ended up in America, some in the Ohio Valley even. There's evidence that others sailed across the Atlantic and ended up in South America and migrated up into North America. These relocated Nephilim began to create their demonic monumental architecture and their new lands. Now in dealing with the Ohio Valley architecture, it's clearly seen from aerial views and it was created with mathematical precision. Some people are surprised that we have these structures in America, but it really shouldn't be that much of a shock because we have these structures all over the Middle East. So when they get forced out of their home by Joshua and Caleb, it could be expected that wherever they land, they're going to start building up their cities with megalithic structures just like they did in their old world. Now, back to the Ohio site. On this particular site, there was evidence of human sacrifice that was unearthed. This is a popular commonality among these Nephilim architecture sites, as human sacrifice was a regular ritual among the Nephilim as well as the human followers who worshipped the Nephilim and their fallen angel gods. I think one of the most amazing things about these structures spanning through America, South America, the most interesting thing to me is that they're dated back between 3,000 and 3,500 years ago, which put them right in line with the migration out of the promised land when Joshua and Caleb invaded. So it lines it right up with the timeline of scripture. It's also interesting that many Native Americans and tribesmen were asked historically about building these sites, and they disclosed that when they first migrated, these megalithic sites were already there in existence. Now this is all according to oral tradition passed down in the tribes. Native American Robert Mirabal, who is a Grammy-winning performer and storyteller, preserves his culture through traveling and performing stories through song and dance. He explained that in his culture, there are historic stories that are passed down from generation to generation for hundreds and hundreds of years. His tribe's account states that a long time ago, people from the stars came down and took wives of the women of earth, and they together produced children that were giants. This is almost a verbatim account of Genesis chapter 6. 
Robert was taught this story from his grandfather as a child. He says that his grandfather had it orally passed down to him from his grandfather, and so on and so on. In many First Nation tribes, there are these legends of ancient giants who ruled the land before the tribes arrived. The Paiute tribe tells of a race of cannibalistic giants whom they declared war on, eventually succeeding in herding them into a cave. After lighting the mouth of the cave on fire, the tribe was able to kill the giants as they attempted to escape the flames. This cave still exists today. The North American Indians, especially the Chippewa, Sandusky, Tawa, Iroquois, Cherokee, Choctaw, and Hopi tribes believed that there was a race of giant beings before them. The Choctaw's legend tells that after they crossed the Mississippi River, they encountered a powerful white race of cannibal giants who came from the east and used mammoths as beasts of burden, but were in decline when the Choctaw came. In the autobiography of William Buffalo Bill Cody, Cody writes that while camping on the South Platte, a Pawnee Indian came into the camp with what the army surgeon pronounced to be a giant thigh bone of a human being. When Cody asked about where such a bone might have come from, the Indian replied that long ago a race of giants had lived in the area that were 15 feet tall. This race of men were three times larger than normal men and able to outrun a buffalo and even carry it in one hand. <laughs> buffalo Bill also wrote the following words about a legend recounted to him by members of the Seo tribe. It was taught by the wise men of this tribe that the earth was originally peopled by giants who were fully three times the size of modern men. They were so swift and powerful that they could run alongside a buffalo take the animal under one arm and tear off a leg and eat it as they ran. So vainglorious were they, because of their own size and strength, that they denied the existence of a creator. When it lighted, they proclaimed their superiority to the lightning. When it thundered, they laughed. He wrote that this displeased the Great Spirit, and to rebuke their arrogance, the Great Spirit sent a great rain upon the earth. The valleys filled with water, and the giants retreated to the hills. The water crept up the hills, and the giants sought after safety on the highest mountains. Still the rain continued, the water rose, and the giants, having no other refuge, were drowned. Wow. This is yet another Native American account that lines up directly with the biblical flood used to suffocate the race of the Nephilim. What's interesting about this, and one thing we have to consider, is this goes to show that there could have possibly been Nephilim activity in America before the migration from the promised land 3,500 years ago. So even before Joshua and Caleb invaded the promised land, according to this legend, there were already giant Nephilim here living. Many archaeological excavations have shown copper armor and copper raiment near the giant skeletal remains, which correlates well with the stories of oral tradition of the tribes of early America and its surrounding lands. Now moving south into Peru, in the coastal city of Paracas, Peru, there were many elongated skulls found. Among the skulls found, there was also found an elongated baby skull and the elongated skull of an unborn fetus. Finding the baby and fetus skull elongated instantly debunks the idea that elongated skulls were solely a result of headboarding or headbinding. For many years, we've heard that these elongated skulls were the result of tying their heads binding their heads somehow at a young age. So by the time they get to a certain age, their skulls would have grown in a weird shape. But when you find a fetus and a baby, they had not had the time for the head binding to take place. 
It's very interesting. When the latest findings began to receive international attention, many scientists and researchers made haste in traveling to the museum in Lima, Peru, where a large collection of elongated skulls were previously on display. They were part of an anthropological exhibit. Now, when the museum in Lima was contacted about giving samples for testing, their tune abruptly changed. Mysteriously, this exhibit was shut down and under construction, even though the newer finds weren't even part of the museum's collection. There were also two nine-foot mummies intact in the same exhibit that had totally disappeared from the museum. This is curious, because before the talk of testing was in effect, the skulls and mummies were on display as presumed as tribal skull-binding practices. But now the case for testing was out to find whether or not these skulls were of hybrid Nephilim creatures. Luckily, there was a private museum located in Paracas that has a collection of artifacts available. Although there were some skulls that showed evidence of head binding, there are also skulls on display that appear to contain DNA and genetic anomalies of great proportions. Among the skulls in the collection were skulls that appeared to be human skulls that had undergone genetic manipulation of some kind. So just on the surface, it would seem that there were the skulls of the Nephilim, skulls of humans that had genetic manipulation, and then skulls of humans who bound their skulls to quite possibly mimic the other two types of beings we just mentioned, all in the same region of Peru, coexisting at the same times. The private museum offered hair samples to undergo hair spectroscopy analysis. The hair samples were of a reddish color. This is interesting because this is directly in line with the Native American stories of the Nephilim having red hair. This is important because in this region, the modern day natives don't have red hair, but rather black hair and hair of darker colors. This is where it gets even crazier. The hair test compared three samples. First you had a human hair, then you had a dyed human hair, and then you had the sample from the Paracas mummy. Okay, you ready for this? There was a fourth hair sample that will shake the ground we stand on if there is any connection in the mummy hair. There's a man who claims to have been abducted and sexually assaulted by a hybrid Nephilim female creature. As crazy and unbelievable as it sounds, this man was able to grab hold of a hair of the hybrid Nephilim female and he contacted L.A. Marzuli, who is a respected and accomplished Christian author, researcher, speaker, and part of this hair study. So if anything, this fourth hair sample adds a scary variable to the study. The hair samples were all placed into a Raman spectroscopy machine, which measures molecular structures and graphs out the findings in a detailed reading. The human hair makes a little low curved U shape on the graph. The dyed human hair makes a normal curve, but then shoots straight up through the side of the graph. Obviously, the dyed hair was manipulated by the dye. Now, folks, I hope you're sitting down for this. The Paracas Nephilim mummy hair sample and the hair of the female Nephilim hybrid from the abduction case slope on the graph identically and track one slightly above the other. Now, looking at the graph is mind-blowing. All the tracking curves are right on top of each other with only a trace between them on the graph. That could be the fact that one was fresh and one was over 2,000 years old. The only difference between the two Nephilim hair samples is the color and the age. The Paracas Nephilim sample was red, while the modern day abduction sample was an extreme blonde color, almost a white color. It would raise the thought that this is solid proof 
that there are Nephilim right now acting out in the United States, performing demonic abduction activity of the fourth kind, per se. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I wouldn't even believe this had the evidence not been seen through extensive testing and research. This is truly amazing to learn. When shown to experts in Raman spectroscopy, the evidence was explained as being a phenomenon that cannot be denied nor overlooked. The slopes and every jot and tittle match up between the two hair samples. This is unbelievable. The first thing that sticks out to me here is we have so many reported cases in America of what they call alien abductions. Now, I've never been one to get into the whole alien conspiracy theories, but there's so many of them. And, and some of the people are considered very well-respected individuals. So for them to be coming forward speaking of these types of abductions, obviously we have to assume that it's demonic. And I don't, I don't get into the whole idea of little green men or these crazy little guys that say, take me to your leader. I, I don't get into all that. I have a biblical approach to this, okay? I have a biblical approach that anything that is called alien or extraterrestrial, anything in that whole area of research, I believe it's demonic. Now, we're going to do another show on Nephilim, demons, aliens. We're going to get into a little bit more of that. And I know that there have been many shows on the Kapow Radio Network that, that get into some of these topics. So the good thing is, is that there's so much information available that we can't even cover it within a few shows. So what I think about here, when I think about this man who was abducted, he was sexually assaulted in the abduction by a female demonic Nephilim creature. He grabbed the hair and unfortunately for the, for the Smithsonian and any of these other academia societies, we now have proof that whatever this creature was that sexually assaulted him and abducted him has the same type of makeup of hair as this 2000 year old mummy. So that shines a new light onto the supernatural and demonic activity going on in our country under the guise of alien abduction. So this is proof that the Nephilim have resurfaced. Okay, the Nephilim are not just some myth of the old scriptures. They're not just some myth of the origin of our country or anything like that. These are modern events happening before our very eyes. The structures that we hear about that were created by these beings, they're pretty amazing. And there's not enough time to get into all of that. I mean, there's there's structures all over the world that are mind-blowing. They defy logic. There's no possible way that, that a man could have put these structures together. But I want to I talk briefly about some of the technology that was used in South America and Peru. And, and again, we have a large finding of these skeletal remains and mummies in Peru. So Peru was kind of a hot spot. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about some of these constructions, um, the technology involved, and they've got unexplainable attributes. Some of these constructions are made of stones weighing between 40 and over 120 tons. Crossing the different regions of South America are walls and structures made of these giant, finely cut polygonal stones. Now that right there should tell you something isn't right. Okay, it doesn't make sense. Why would there be finely cut polygonal stones? I mean, most of our houses and buildings are constructed with blocks, with squares, with rectangles. It wouldn't make sense to our human minds to cut a stone in a polygonal method. It just wouldn't seem legitimate. 
but they've cut these stones with multiple sides. That just defies logic of our current archaeological industry. But the interesting thing here, these stones were transferred over 40 to 60 miles from the quarries of origin. They've taken samples that they're able to find where these stones came from. So they carry these stones that, weigh, that are some weighing over 120 tons. They've carried these stones over 40 to 60 miles, and then they've built them up on a location that's over 12,000 feet above sea level. Another interesting fact is these stones, these polygonal cut stones, are sitting almost airtight on each other without mortar, one on top of the other. The joints are so fine, a human hair can't even fit through them. Another interesting fact is that the material of this particular stone used is so hard that common chisels aren't able to work through them. This technology is seen throughout multiple regions. Now, duplicating this stonework today would be almost impossible, but in the event that it could be mimicked, it would be so expensive and time-consuming, it wouldn't even be profitable. But we're dealing with ancient structures here, over thousands of years old. This is just more evidence of the Nephilim migration and habitation of fallen angels around the globe, but more directly in the Americas. When we start looking in the Americas, it makes it more real to us, especially those of us who live in the Americas. We're learning here that our land is ripe, not just with history, but even with modern day supernatural abduction occurrences involving none other than the Nephilim. It just, it hits home. It makes things more realistic. It makes the picture more vivid because we're not dealing with myths. We're not dealing with fairy tales or legends. We're experiencing these things fresh right off the burner. Now, during the Spanish conquest of the Inca back in 1528, the Spaniards, the conquistadors asked the Inca who built these great structures. The Spanish men were blown away at these structures. They saw technology that they had never seen before. And the Inca told them that the giants built them all. It was common knowledge apparently to the Inca and all the tribes that these giants were there first. And the structures were all there completely built when the tribes migrated into the land. Once more, this is right in line with the Native American tribes stories in North America as well. And even into Mexico. So these structures go back thousands of years. And they speak of a technology that has since been lost. Some of these stones are even cut with 10 sides, and each side sits flat on other stones on all 10 sides. When you look at what's going on here, you've got these stones cut with 10 sides, and they're sitting flat on other stones on every side, and somehow these stones have survived the many earthquakes of Peru. So the technology, the physics involved in the building of these structures was so solid, so far advanced, that they've been able to survive many earthquakes and all types of natural disasters over the years, over thousands of years. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as we come to a close of another week, we've learned some extremely interesting facts, bringing the Nephilim history right into our own continent and surrounding countries. These are very amazing findings for sure. Of course, we should listen to the Smithsonian Institution and deny all these things, right? <laughs> Let's listen to the experts and just deny everything that we have evidence for. That's the mindset that we see so much in our country. If we're taught it in school, if we learn it in the university, if we see it on the Smithsonian Channel, it must be true. <laughs> Unfortunately, academia has really been dumbed down over the 20th century in regards to history and anthropology. They've rewritten it. They've created a rationalistic view 
that goes along with evolution. And we know that that's absolute bupkis. Not a shred of evidence for that. But luckily for us and for the world, there are solid teams of researchers and Bible scholars who are working around the clock to bring this information out, which completely confirms biblical and pseudographical accounts. Learning about these Nephilim and their operation makes me think about a deeper understanding of Matthew chapter 24. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Many people debate the interpretation of this verse, as we mentioned earlier. The fact is, we need to go back to the days of Noah and study what all was going on in that time, before the flood. In doing so, we learn a plethora of wickedness involving the Nephilim marrying the women and creating this extraterrestrial demon race. The bloodline of man was corrupted with genetic manipulation and hybrid Nephilim. We know that they weren't just corrupting the DNA of man, they were corrupting the DNA of animals. Like the Kapals talked about earlier this week, the Chimeras. Okay, we're dealing with mixing of DNA, things that were never supposed to happen, creating hybrid creatures. So we weren't just dealing with hybrid humans, we weren't just dealing with Nephilim, we're dealing with these Chimeras, we're dealing in some cases with what's called the Golem. Um, the Jewish Kabbalah even speaks of creating golems. They would take different uh, different parts of man, different parts of animals and women, and they would cut them up. And then they would sew together a golem creature made up of all these different body parts. Then they would go through a black magic ritual, and they would speak life satanically into this creature. Uh, the best understanding of this would be they conjure up a demon that takes over the flesh body that they've sewed up. I think we're going to be seeing more behavior like this as we approach deeper into the end times. This gets into the avatar technology, the, the transhumanism technology, where a demon can take over a body. So that's kind of what was going on with the golem situation. Now, whether or not you believe in the golems or any of the black magic rituals of the Kabbalah, obviously it's not meant for us to practice. But they're involved in a world of supernatural just like we are, except they're serving the wrong side. They're conjuring demons. They're conjuring wicked spirits while we live with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus tells us that things will be as it were in the days of Noah as we approach his divine return. So it's not unbiblical to expect to see these things surface and even start coming to pass in days to come. Now, I realize that this is a lot to digest for many listening right now, and it's even scary to some. But I recommend as always, if you're in doubt, Please look into these things, even if you're not in doubt. If you just want to confirm it, hey, look into this. But keep a biblical approach rather than a Darwinistic approach, as we know that this evidence completely debunks any form of Darwinism. But on the other hand, most importantly, it correlates with the Word of God. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged and rejoice, for we know that we're getting closer to the return of Jesus Christ Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, who died on the cross and shed His blood to pay the ransom for our sins. He then resurrected and he ascended into heaven to prepare a place for all of us that believe. If you're not a follower of Christ, let me go ahead and encourage you to repent of your sins and accept Christ, making today your day of salvation. If you acknowledge that Jesus is the creator of everything, who was with God and is God, you can be part of the family and will inherit a heavenly inheritance of eternal life. The things of this life will fade away, ladies and gentlemen, just like a wildflower, but your soul is forever. So join the body of Christ while you still can, my friends. In John 14:3, Jesus left us with an amazing promise. He said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He was laying out the prophecy that was to come. 
So let's go to the time it actually was fulfilled in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Amen, folks. Just like Jesus ascended, he will descend, he will come back for his church. Nothing like seeing the promises of Christ fulfilled. So there's so much for us to look forward to, folks. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T.com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.